miracles. We're continuing our series on miracles. And speaking of miracles, I'd like to talk about the Texas Rangers for just a moment. <laughs> Some of you may know they got a new manager, Chris Woodward. And uh, they made a free agent signing uh, here just a month or two ago. Um, they signed a guy. I don't know how many of are familiar with Jeff Mathis. Jeff, how many of you know who Jeff Mathis is? Yeah, that's the problem. So uh, paid him $6.5 million, and he is a catcher. <clears throat> but here's, here's the unique thing about Jeff Mathis. Jeff Mathis has the lowest batting average of any major league player who's had at least 2,500 at-bats. That's how you have to have that number of bats for them to score you. He's had the lowest batting average of all the major league players that have ever played for the last 100 years. In the last 100 years, we just signed a guy for $6 million who has the lowest. I don't know if you know anything about baseball, but batting average, that's a big deal. That means you hit the ball and you get on base. That's the only way you score runs. And so we just paid him $6.5 million, and he's the big free agent signing we have here. And so uh, I'm sure great things are coming this year. And so nevertheless, uh, it was interesting listening to his coach, uh, the new coach, Chris Woodward. He said, uh, you know, they were asking, so tell us about this. Tell us why you're, why you're signing him. Tell, me, tell us why you're exciting. And, it's, and one of the things he talked about was the Rangers have three pitchers who have gone through Tommy John surgery. In other words, they weren't able to pitch last year. <clears throat> they were out of baseball for a year, and you may not even make a comeback. And then a couple other guys that nobody's ever heard of that are going to be starting, okay? It's one of the worst rotations in baseball. And so here was a thought. Um, Jeff Mathis is considered one of the best framers, pitch framers, of all the catchers in baseball. So basically that means he knows exactly where to put the glove, okay, to get a strike. He, he's real good at putting the glove at that right spot. And uh, when Woodward said, you know, we've got all these guys that are coming back from Tommy John surgery, and we've got some young guys, and so we just felt like that would be very important for, to have a catcher who could put the glove in the right spot, okay? So we paid him $6.5 million, all right? He said, I think that through Chris, he said, I think that through Jeff, we can redeem, he will help redeem some of our pitchers who may have, other teams thought, would not be able to pitch again. I thought that was an interesting word, the word redeemed. And the truth of it is, as we look at miracles today in this part two, uh, the word redemption is the key word. We like to think of miracles, and it's true, and we talked about this last week. Number one, as revelation, we'll see in this passage that we'll look at in just a moment, that Jesus' miracles gave revelation to who he is. And number two, we see restoration will occur where people are restored uh, to where they were before the disease hit them. But the third and probably the most important aspect of the miracles is the redemptive purpose of Christ. That he is here to redeem mankind from sin and to give them life and life permanently and abundantly through himself. So as we think about that, I would almost go... And, and use this word, redemption versus relief. Today, many of you are here and you would like to have relief. Whether your relief is physical, financial, uh, emotional, social, relationship-wise. Uh, many of you here are probably seeking relief. But could it be that the greater miracle would be that God would redeem your circumstances, i.e. even your struggles? So as we talk about this, I want us to turn to the Bible in Matthew, beginning in Matthew chapter 8, excuse me, 11, Matthew chapter 11, 
And let me tell you what's going on here. This is about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was recognized by Jesus as the greatest man of God that ever lived. There, there was none greater before or after John. So Jesus himself, the God of the universe, gives high praise to John. So John is the forerunner to the Messiah. We know this from uh, Malachi chapter 3 where it was predicted that a forerunner would come, one who would come and preach and prepare the way, and that's John. And John is the one who has first declared that Jesus is the Messiah. We talked about that last week in John chapter 1. John, when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that proclamation has been made. John has been preaching about him all of his adult life, and now Jesus has come, and he's pointing his people, he's pointing his disciples, he's pointing everybody to Christ. But during this time, as John stands up and he uh, just boldly proclaims the truth, and matter of fact, he did that to some of the authorities, some of the politicians, uh, King Herod himself, and he, he boldly confronted him. John finds himself in prison. And now all these things are happening, and John was thinking, you know, I'm going to be a part of that, and I'm going to be a part as Jesus comes and he's bringing in a new kingdom. And I think that's certainly going to be spiritual. And John probably even thought that there will be a lot of physical aspects of the kingdom that he would enjoy and be a part of. But John's in jail. And he didn't know if he's ever going to get out. Matter of fact, he doesn't get out. He gets executed. But he's in this prison while all these things are occurring. And he starts to doubt. It ought to make you feel pretty good. And it ought to make me feel pretty good that sometimes I doubt. If John the Baptist, whom Jesus said was the greatest man that ever lived... If Jesus is saying that and John doubts, that gives people like you and me hope. All right? So it's not a matter of what, if we doubt. The question becomes, what do we do with those doubts? And do we move forward even in spite of those doubts? And do we recognize that God can work even through our doubts? So let's start our passage right here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Are you the one that's coming? And I, I thought it was, but here I've been in prison. And I know one of the things that's supposed to happen is the captives are supposed to get set free, but I'm not getting set free. I know also that, that some, of the, some of the rabbis taught that there might be two messiahs. There's one who would come in a spiritual nature and one who would come in a more militaristic manner. And I'm just wondering, I'm struggling. And I hear that you've touched people that are unclean and... All these things are transpiring, but I'm not seeing anything really change and transform. I hear about people, but I'm not seeing it in my world. I just want to make sure I didn't miss anything because I'm discouraged. I'm here in prison. And what does Jesus say? He didn't go back. Hey, doofus, you're the one that told everybody I was anyway. You're, didn't, you, didn't you listen to your mom? Didn't you hear your Aunt Mary tell you that? He didn't say any of that. Here's what he does. He points John back to the miracles of the Old Testament that were prophesied that would only be done by the Messiah. The miracles of the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, several of these are prophesied. And this is what it says. Jesus says, go back and you tell John this. Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. This is the prophecy, and John would have known that as a, as a preacher. The prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah. He will give sight to the blind. He will make the lame to walk, and the lepers cleanse. This one's a huge one because in Israel's history, 
other than the time Elijah uh, healed a guy named Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5, who was a Syrian, he wasn't an Israelite, no one was ever healed of leprosy. Now, Miriam had it momentarily before the covenant uh, as a punishment, but that's, that wasn't even the case. Nobody in, in Israel has ever gone through this process, and it's interesting, in Leviticus chapter 13, there is a whole uh, section there, the whole chapter is devoted to uh, the priest identifying those who have leprosy and then what has to occur because this disease is so ca- contagious and so awful. This is the worst disease that you could have in ancient times. It has a tremendous stigma. Physically, it was believed to be very contagious. And not only that, you were castigated from your social network, from your family, uh, because they couldn't be near you. And so you were put out of the city gates if you were in the city, and you were left to roam with other uh, lepers, and you basically became a beggar, yet you could never approach or come close to anyone. And if that's not enough, you had to walk around when people were coming your way so that they might know you had to say, unclean, unclean, unclean. Now tell me, that's not a self-esteem booster. You already got this life-threatening disease, you've already been castigated, and then this is what you're supposed to proclaim when people are coming your direction. So, and interesting, at this point, In history, no one's ever been cured of leprosy that was a Jew in the nation of Israel. And so it's very interesting. This is a very telling, and you'll see this is the miracle we'll first see after the water to wine that Jesus will perform. The deaf to hear, the dead to be raised up, and the poor have good news to be preached to them. So arguably the most two daunting and the most two unbelievable miracles up there would be healing of leprosy, and raising the dead. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to start off doing. He's going to make his mark on the ministry right here. He's going to let them know. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 8, beginning with the first verse, as we look at this revelation, restoration, and redemption. And we'll see how not only does Jesus uh, reveal himself, not only does he restore, he redeems each of these situations, each of these individuals. So, Here we are. Jesus has just preached. We're coming out of Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. Uh, There are thousands of people who have heard this sermon, and Jesus starts to come down from the mountain, and this is where we are. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. Now, right here, we can see uh, the gospel presentation in this one verse. First of all, the Bible says, that a leper came to him. A leper, someone who cannot heal themselves, someone who knows they are unclean, someone who knows they're going to die, someone who has been completely castigated and there is no hope for them. This leper comes to Jesus. He believes, he's heard the prophecies, he's heard the stories, and he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. He believes that Jesus at least has the ability to heal him, but he has nothing to offer Jesus. So the Bible says this leper comes to him, and what does he do? He kneels before him. He submits to him. He's in a posture of worship. The the leper, the one who is unclean, the one who has a death sentence, comes and he kneels before Jesus, and the Bible says this. He calls him Lord. If you will, you can make me clean. Lord, I am asking not by merit, not because I deserve it, but by grace. Would you heal me? Would you cleanse me? 
I bow before you. I recognize that you are the only one and that you are my only hope. I am broken. I am unclean. I need you, Jesus. Cleanse me. And Jesus says, I will. Hey, that's how we all come before God. We don't come with our attitude, our agendas. We don't come before God with our conditions. If we do, we're not kneeling and recognizing him as Lord. We have to come to that place where we recognize our need, and we must kneel before him, and we ask by grace through faith that he might forgive and save us. Beautiful picture of the gospel. And so here we have this leper, and up to this point, people have only been, so to speak, proclaimed as lepers. If you go to Leviticus chapter 14, there's a whole chapter there about the reinstitution of a leper back into the community. There's a whole process of sacrifice and multiple things, a whole chapter devoted to this on how you might be restored. Here's the problem. There hadn't been a Jew that had ever used that. They've never done that. Matter of fact, if you go back and you look at the Talmud and the Mishnah, which are commentaries of the Jewish Old Testament that the Jews wrote, um, they said there was, they, they would say this, they would say when the Messiah would come, then someone would be healed of leprosy, because no one had ever been. So why is this chapter here? Sometimes the rabbis would be asked, because when the Messiah comes, that's why Leviticus 14 is there, to reinstitute those who have leprosy. But they hadn't had to use Leviticus 14 up to this point until Jesus comes on the scene. And here's what Jesus says. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. Now, why is that significant? Because leprosy is considered unclean. And if you touch someone with leprosy, regardless if you get it or not, you are designated as unclean. You can't come to the temple. You're going to have to go through a sacrificial process. And you're going to be castigated temporarily because you have now touched what was unclean. And Jesus knows this. He's a teacher, and he purposefully touches it. We know he didn't have to touch him, because we'll see here in just a moment. He didn't have to touch the next guy, but he purposefully touches him. It reminds me of the scripture that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's exactly what is transpiring right here. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to them, See that you say nothing to anyone. What I want you to do, don't say anything, don't stop along the road. I want you to go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. Now, what is that? Leviticus 14. I want you to go to the priest because that's what you were supposed to do if, if someone was ever healed from leprosy. And guess what that would do? That would tell the priest, that would tell those in authority, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah, the one you've been anticipating. The only one that your, your forefathers have taught, the only way that you would know that he is the Messiah, or the way that you would know that he's the Messiah, the revelation would be he would be the one who heals someone of leprosy. And that's exactly what occurred. So he said, go show yourself to the priest. Go let the leadership know. Do the biblical manner in which God had commanded and go show yourself and offer the gift that Moses commanded for what? For proof to them so that they might know. All right, we continue. Then we go to the next verse, the next story right here. And when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. Now, what's a centurion? Well, that word century we know needs 100. So he's a Roman officer, over 100 men. He's in the Capernaum area, which is not that big. I had a chance to go there several years ago. 
And so this is probably the leader of that community from a militaristic and from a power standpoint. And we also know from the other writers of the gospel that this particular centurion had built a synagogue for the Jews there. So they were very thankful. He had been very favorable, very kind and gracious. So he must have understood something about Judaism as they went through this process and he built them a synagogue. So he's a man familiar with their customs, familiar with their ways. Perhaps he's even heard the scriptures, he's even heard the prophecies, or at least the talk. And the Bible says, this centurion came forward and appealed to him, and he calls him Lord. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home and suffering terribly. So you get the picture? Here's this pagan Gentile Roman officer, and he comes before Jesus on behalf of his servant. And he says, Lord, can you heal him? Will you heal him? This is an act of great faith. And from whatever small revelation he has, he is acting upon that. And he's doing it on behalf of his servant who is paralyzed and sick and suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Jesus responds, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. Just say the word. Now, when I was a kid, I used to think this. I used to think when I'd read this story, I'd go, well... He's just embarrassed, and he doesn't want Jesus to come over. That's what's been going on. He just, he's just kind of embarrassed. He ought to just step up and go on over to his house, go into your house today like Zacchaeus. Uh, but you're telling him not to come. But here's the background to help us understand this a little better. Again, he is definitely familiar with their customs. He's built a synagogue. If he's a Gentile and he enters into the home of Jesus or Jesus enters into his home, he automatically is unclean. Jesus is made unclean by this Roman officer. So this Roman officer says, you don't have to do that. I know your customs. I know what's going on. You just speak the word. Just say the word. Now, what's significant about that is uh, in the ancient cultures, particularly in ancient Judaism, they believed, and, and really even the pagans did this, most of them believed that if someone could long distance heal someone or, or so to speak, so to speak, speak a miracle from a distance where they couldn't even see the person, then that person would be a deity. So in his own pagan mindset, this must be, he must be the God that the Israelites have waited for. He must be that Messiah. And he said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And then he says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed, truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found that has such faith. Just say the word. You must be a God or the God. You can just speak a word. And if it's true who I've heard that they've said you are, who you could potentially be, then you can just speak the word into order. And life will be given. Healing will be given. And he believed this. He didn't have any reason not to. He didn't have any reason to, but he believed it. And Jesus so encourages his faith. And he said, this is the greatest faith I've seen. You see, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the kingdom of heaven. In other words, some people who will come that aren't Jews, who haven't been given the full revelation. And while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into darkness, in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the centurion, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have what? Pisteo. 
The Greek word here we find in John 3.16, which means to believe, to commit, to adhere to. As you, com- as you have committed in faith, you've seen this healing. And the servant was healed at that very moment. He has just identified himself as God in the flesh. He's doing a miracle that only the Messiah could do. Only someone of a deity could do. He's also healed of leprosy. And the, their rabbis have already been telling them that one day, the, when the Messiah comes, someone will finally be healed. There'll be a purpose for Le- Leviticus 14. And there's never been a purpose for Leviticus 14. No one, according to the extra biblical documents that we have in Scripture, no one's ever been through that process until now. The revelation of Christ, the restoration of Christ. And here's God redeeming that chapter. Here's God redeeming this man. He's redeeming the leper. He's redeeming the centurion. He's doing only what the Messiah could do. Maybe you're here this morning and you struggle and you would be like the rest of us. I want to give three application points that are true, good truths for us to remember as we consider the miracle of redemption. Number one, just like John the Baptist, sometimes it feels as though God has forgotten us. I know some of you here, I talked to a few people last hour who uh, have a terminal uh, cancer situation. And they, they said, you know, sometimes we do just feel like God's forgotten. But you, here's what we know, even John the Baptist felt that way. Just because you feel it, just because fear enters into the equation, just because you sometimes doubt doesn't mean God's word isn't true. So know that you're in good company. Just because you have doubts doesn't mean it's not true. The question becomes, what do you do with your doubts? Number two, God can redeem our struggles for his greater glory. God can redeem our struggles for his greater glory. We see him doing it through the centurion. We see him doing it through the leper. And that's what we see now. We, we read these stories. We tell these stories. And God is still redeeming their stories of pain, of Job, of Jonah, of Elijah. We still read these stories, and God's still redeeming their life today. And number three, the redemption God has planned will always outweigh the perceived relief that comes from escaping our struggles. Most of us, myself included, we just want to get out of the struggle. We just want the pain to go away. We just want the situation to go. If I can just get out, if you just heal me, God, I'll be fine, and everything will be fine. But Jesus has such a bigger picture. And here's what he promises, that one day he will fully restore. And we look forward to that day. Sometimes he chooses a day, but here's what he always does. He always redeems pain and suffering and struggle for the believer when we choose Christ. And that is a miracle in itself. Now you may be saying, well, practically though, how does that work? I don't see that happening. Well, let me give you a list of some people you're probably familiar with that God has redeemed for the greater mankind, has redeemed uh, these guys in their deficiencies, their maladies, their struggles in life. Uh, matter of fact, one in five people we know have some kind of psychological or physical disorder already. One in five have some kind of mental illness uh, of some kind. So let's go through this first. First of all, in the Bible, if you go back and look at these stories, uh, Job, Elijah, Jonah, all had times where they say, God, I'm done. I just want to end it. Just take me. I don't want to live anymore. That's kind of a sign of depression right there. You know, That's a sign of the struggle right there. Let's give a couple more. How about Jeremiah? He was called the weeping pro- prophet and uh, never allowed to marry and never uh, was able to see anybody come and repent as a result of his messages, but he just had to keep preaching them. 
pretty discouraging as a pastor. Uh, David, Psalm 42. Let me give you another Psalm, David. Said, and this is, the, uh, this is Psalm 88. These are the last four verses of this chapter, so this is how it ends. Tell me what you think about this. Here's David speaking. Afflicted and close to death for my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And that's the end of the chapter. (laughs) You think he's depressed? I think so. And yet, now for encouragement, we go and we read the Psalms of someone who went through the depth of the darkest depression and penned these words, having no idea what he was penning would be Bible. He didn't sit down and go, I think I'll write some Bible today. No, the Spirit is moving upon him, and he's writing, he's journaling this out. And here we are, uh, nearly 3,000 years later, still reading his words. So let's talk about today, individuals who overcome, individuals who have struggles, and yet they've accomplished much. Leonardo da Vinci, Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein, Walt Disney all had dyslexia. And you think about the impact that they've had on our lives. Some of the greatest thinkers, plus Disney World over here in the right, who, who was one of the great cartoonists, had dyslexia. And yet they were able to find the strength as they struggled uh, with what they were dealing with to overcome And not only just overcome, but to make an impact in their world at that time that we still know about. Pretty amazing. I would propose to you that it's because of their maladies, it's because of their struggles that they were so successful in their life. Sometimes we don't understand how God wants to redeem our physical, our our emotional, our limitations that we have, that we have to work that much harder with. Just like Paul said, Three times I asked God to remove the thorn in my flesh, but he didn't. And God said, in my weakness, he is made strong. In other words, Paul, you wouldn't have the strength. I wouldn't be glorified if it weren't for your weakness. It is a central part of who you are. Let's look, look at some others here. How about OCD, Michelangelo? Can I tell you, Michelangelo never would have accomplished the things that he accomplished if he didn't have OCD. I know some of you think you have OCD, and that may be God's blessing to you, all right? Another, how about bipolar disorder and depression? Beethoven, one of the greatest composers that ever lived, and of course he went deaf by the time he died, yet wrote some of the most amazing music the world has ever known. Sir Isaac Newton and the great painter Van Gogh all suffered from bipolar and depression. Another list here, depression and anxiety attacks. The greatest president by most who ever lived was Abraham Lincoln. He struggled with anxiety attacks, continual depression. Uh, Also, his wife, uh, Mary Todd, was schizophrenic. And yet, he had such a heart of compassion. He worked so hard, and God did so much through our nation, through him. Here's another, Uh, autism. Nikola Tesla, many regard him to be the greatest scientist, the greatest inventor that ever lived. But he suffered, suffered from severe depression. Anthony Hopkins uh, has Asperger's disease, one of the greatest actors of our time. Bobby Fischer, the greatest chess player that ever lived. Let me tell you, Bobby Fischer wouldn't have been the greatest uh, chess player that ever lived if he hadn't had autism. 
Nobody would have ever heard of him. But because of his autism, we know who Bobby Fisher is today. Um, next slide here, Winston Churchill, uh, probably the man that was given the most credit for helping in World War II, suffered from bipolar and dyslexia. You think about that for a moment. Uh, matter of fact, I was reading an article, uh, and I didn't show it because I just didn't have time. I didn't over, want to overwhelm you. But it's estimated that a third of the presidents of the United States that have been in office had some kind of mental disorder. I think it's almost a prerequisite to be president now. So that's <laughs> nevertheless. Continuing. And now I'm going to get some letters about that one. I know. All right, depression. <laughs> Pablo Picasso. Buzz Aldrin, one of the first men to walk on the moon. And even Jim Carrey. I thought I'd throw that in so you at least know one person, kids. <laughs> suffers from depression. And then here are four, kind of my four heroes in the faith. These are four people who've had great influence for me. Uh, first of all, Mother Teresa. I think she's probably the greatest humanitarian in the modern era that ever lived. Uh, I love her story. I love some of her writings. But she suffered with deep depression, deep, dark depression. C.S. Lewis, the guy who, when I came to Christ, when I got serious about my faith, probably the most influential writer uh, that, I ever, that I ever read, C.S. Lewis. As a matter of fact, we've got a family here uh, in our church that um, Matt Jones, some of you know that his books, his writings, Matt was an agnostic uh, from, from Great Britain, and he said Lewis's writings, that's what finally pushed him over the edge. It finally made, he, he began to understand the faith and came to Christ. Charles Spurgeon, regarded as the greatest modern preacher uh, in history, uh, Spurgeon was doing a megachurch before anybody knew what a megachurch was. He was preaching in London. They had to build another building because they couldn't pack all the people in. Then they had, a, they had an auditorium that held 5,000 people. They would do three services, and people would literally be on the outside trying to listen in through the walls and through the windows as he preached. And he dealt with depression all of his adult life. He called it the black dog of his life. It followed him around everywhere he went, but it, but it humbled him, and it gave him such a passion, and he trusted Christ so much, he was constantly crying out for him that when he preached, people just resonated with his message. People literally would come down the aisles before he gave, gave an invitation to accept Christ as God used him mightily. And then Martin Luther, we're here right here today uh, because God chose to use a guy who suffered with mighty depression called Martin Luther. He started the Protestant Reformation. And so when we look at this, isn't it amazing how we so often look at things and we think, well, my son, my daughter, my husband, whatever it is, they're never going to be able to do much life. God just kind of cursed them. Could it be that God wants to redeem them more greatly than you could ever imagine? And that it's not just about the relief. It's about how he wants to restore and even more importantly, how he wants to redeem. We're all going to be, as believers in Christ, restored completely and perfectly one day. But the question is, will we use our lives to be redeemed by God today? There are a lot of studies that says because of all the efforts that go into when you have a disability like that, that you have to compensate that you learn, dif dif you learn discipline and you learn all these great life skills and these study skills and concentration and focus and the rest of your area of your life strengthens as well. So here's my small little confession that I can't be on that slide. I got ADD. My counselor mother is here. She said, you definitely, kid, had ADD. You know what? I know that's popular for kids to have. Some of you join me. Matter of fact, my good friend David Lasser, who's an elder here, he's got ADD. He's one of the most successful businessmen I know. Can I tell you this? God can take what looks like a struggle for you, and he can redeem it 
for his glory. That's why I am so thankful. That's why when I look and I think about some of the people that last hour and this hour who are still struggling because they lost someone, because they've lost a spouse or they've lost a parent or they've lost a child and they're struggling mightily and we know this truth to be true that Jesus Christ who lived and died and on our behalf redeems all things. The Bible tells us this. In Scripture, in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond comprehension. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery, fiery trials that come unto you to test you as though it was strange. But rejoice in so much as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when glory is revealed. If you are insulted on the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God rests upon you. But let none of you who suffer... Uh, let none of you suffer, be an evildoer or a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify the name of God. And then Revelations chapter 21 says this, and I've read it many times. Then I saw, here's Jesus speaking, John speaking as he's uh, speaking on behalf of Christ as he speaks to us. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice of the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, no crying, nor pain, now, former things will all be past. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. I am restoring everything to their perfect condition. I will redeem all suffering for a clown of glory. So those of you who suffered much, your glory is greater. For those of you who experienced pain, your glory is greater. And God is saving up. He's putting it in your account, and it's the best interest you could ever earn. And it's being applied to your account. So it's not about escaping. It's about redeeming because we're looking at the eternal picture of Christ Jesus our Lord in a land where we will live forever and our whole purpose is to bring him glory. Oh, what opportunities he gives us. Let us see as Christ sees, not as Satan would have us to believe. Do you know him? I invite you to know the redeeming Savior of the universe this day. Let's pray. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And God, I know there are many here that have suffered losses, tremendous and deep heavy losses. And Lord, I pray for those who've lost parents and spouses, and it's those who've lost children, and that one day when they are reunited, what glory and joy they will experience. The Bible says it's joy unspeakable and full of glory. God, thank you. And even though we can't understand it, we can't fully grasp it, and it still is discouraging and depressing at times, Lord, we put our final hope and trust in you and what you do through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're all lepers coming unclean as sinners, and we are kneeling before you. We recognize that you're the only one that can heal our sins. You're the only one that can restore us, and you're certainly the only one that can redeem our ashes for beauty. 
Lord, if there's someone that doesn't know you today, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit. And may your name be glorified. Amen.